Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Hollywood Breaks. It's good to be with you on this Friday morning. As you can see, Keith and I are not alone this week. We have a special guest. Uh, so first, I want to introduce Keith. And Keith, please introduce your friend. Oh, thanks, Tim. Always great to be with you. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce a very good friend of mine, Cameron, De Cameron Dillaboo from uh, Amazon Video. Uh, I've known Cameron for almost a decade, if you can believe it, Cameron has been that long. Um, we met at Fox, um, and she worked in home entertainment. I worked in theatrical marketing, um, and we met through a leadership program, and we have kept in touch ever since. Um, and, you know, it's just great to have her. Thanks for joining us, Cameron. Um, Absolutely. Why don't, up, why don't you tell uh, the group a little bit about yourself and background and what have you? Yeah, so um, I uh, lead uh, global brand strategy at Amazon Prime Video currently. Um, I started my career in consumer packaged goods, working on the Neutrogena brand for Johnson & Johnson, and I did that for six years. Um, and then I moved to Fox, where I was for actually 11 years, which is kind of unheard of these days to work somewhere for so long. Um, and I was in home entertainment, um, started in international home entertainment, and then eventually transitioned to worldwide home entertainment. Um, and then I have now been at uh, Amazon for two years and a couple months. So um, been there long enough to now know, you know, how to submit my expenses and use <laughs> some of the, you know, internal systems, uh, but learning more every day. Yeah. Right. Cameron, first really important question. How many movie posters did you steal from the Fox lot? Because Keith has a hey, hey, not stolen, taken, uh, you know, under all aspects of the law. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, th I thought that was bold. I mean, I even had a vendor make a um, uh, make a seven-year itch Marilyn Monroe poster that hung in my office just for me, and I left the office and left it hanging there. I didn't oh. know that. Taking my decorations home was an option, so I'm so disappointed to learn that yeah. now. Yeah, you, you, you should have learned. You should have learned. Yeah. I had one of those claptrap frames, so I could, you know, put posters in. Pretty much, I swapped them. Clever. Out. I just kept them. So. Clever. <laughs> Didn't yeah. take the frame though. Didn't take the frame. Yeah. So I, well, I did you, not take the frame. <laughs> you you do have a moral compass. That is good to know. Uh, so you know, I'm one of the few in Hollywood that still has one. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, are you going to tell us who, uh, who the designer of this poster? Do you know the background? Yes. Actually, thank you, Tim. So, Cam, just to fill you in, um, every time I start doing this, uh, Tim has been harassing me to make sure I know who the designer is because, you know, a lot of audience are in sort of the design space. Uh, yes, this is the Kingsman uh, Secret Service poster. Um, it was designed by Bond, which is uh, Luke Silver Greenberg's company. Um, one of the more cooler posters I worked on when I was at Fox. Um, Great movie to work on. Um, it was quite a difficult marketing campaign to crack, um, but we did eventually get there and the movie was a success. So that's always good. And, and that's uh, the teaser poster, right? That was the that teaser. Is, yes, this yeah. is the teaser poster. That is correct. Yeah. It's the famous yeah. closet sequence, which went away. The good one. Fun. Yes, we were, very, <laughs> we, were, we were very happy with this poster indeed, so. All right, I, I have to ask a couple of questions about the inside scoop about from Fox. Clearly you guys, the transition from where Fox was to where it is now, there's a lot of things going on. You probably know a lot of people that have moved on, lost their jobs, uh, landed in new places. Um, when you think about just the transition of what you guys used to do and then where the market is now, do you have, a, do you have the same sense that I have that things have shifted in such a great way that 
the positions that maybe basically the, the strategy, the jobs and positions that we once did don't even exist anymore. And now there's kind of like a new field. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do. What's really interesting about Fox, I think, is they truly hired, I think, for um, an entrepreneurial skill set. I mean, a lot of companies, I think, say that. But Fox, you really had to be scrappy and treat your role like you were running your own business. And they hired for that because, honestly, once you got there, it was like they gave you a pencil and were like, okay, good luck. Like, <laughs> if you need anything, knock on someone's door and ask them a question. Yeah. So if you were shy and you weren't going to get out there and hustle, it was not the place for you. Right. Um, I think what's interesting is that because they hired for entrepreneurial skill sets, what I've seen with, with all of, you know, my colleagues who haven't gone on to, you know, other entertainment jobs is that they've started companies or they've gone on to things that are outside of entertainment that are really entrepreneurial. They've started their own coaching businesses. They've started different kinds of businesses that have nothing to do with, um, with anything in the business. So they've kind of, that's the skill set that they've taken away because the, the jobs don't exist anymore. You know, there aren't, there isn't this whole world of theatrical or home entertainment, you know, gigantic, um, field of VPs and SVPs and EVPs like that those days are are over and so people have taken that instead of saying like I'm an entertainment professional they've kind of said I'm an entrepreneur and they've taken that forward so that's how I see it shifting that's interesting how about you Keith do you have a sense too of yeah I mean I would echo a lot of I mean it was definitely entrepreneurial on sort of the entertainment um, sort of where Cameron sat and but sort of from a theatrical perspective, as Cameron, I'm sure, can attest to, we had some very <clears throat> demonstrative bosses. <laughs> so the, uh, the entrepreneurial side was not necessarily as encouraged, but it definitely existed. And I think for us, it was more about them dictating from on high what we needed to do for a campaign and then just making it happen. And there wasn't any sense of like, this is your job. This is what you need to focus on. You know, for me, example, I sat in creative advertising. You would think all I ever worked on was TV spots and trailers. No, it was digital stuff. It was visual facts. And it was, you know, a whole laundry list of things that I was involved in aside from just, you know, working on sort of the, the trailers and TV spots and the overall campaign. And the other thing I would say that's largely changed is it's not, when I was at Fox, it was like you built campaigns. They were, month-long campaigns and there was a strat you know there was a set number of trailers you're going to do you do the teaser and then you do the trailers and then you had a potential campaign launch on a massive tv show like a friend's like when i was i remember when i was there we were literally walking spots over to fox across the fox broadcasting across the street to run on american idol that night because yeah. american idol was so key to shifting tracking that was coming out that week by like 10 points and you could do that then. Now you can't do that anymore. And I, I don't think campaigns exist as much as they used to. Um, and I think that's a big shift. Um, now it's more about whether or not the, the content you're selling has a, an IP attached to it that's going to come with a built-in audience. How are you going to sort of get into the, you know, penetrate the culture in some way so that people want to find your content? Because the, the idea of a TV campaign is gone. That's just that gone. It, uh, one camera now I know why you've lasted at Amazon for for so many years two and a half years seems like a long run at Amazon from all that I've understood and uh the entrepreneurial edge is definitely a necessity um I've heard stories that you have to build your own desk at Amazon so I don't know if that's really true but it, <laughs> you have to confirm or deny it but just the look on your face I think I'm hitting on something um but, but uh the transition Keith's talking about is one that I'm curious especially with your position at Prime 
it feels like people are focusing more on the platform than on the show. So the campaign is really about getting viewers and subscribers instead of people to watch specific content. Yeah, you know, I think um, the way that we have thought about things, it's always shifted. I mean, the, the pace of the business in streaming is so fast and um, it's really astonishing. Part of it is because we have good data. So we're able to pivot and make adjustments. Um, and we also are constantly tinkering with the way that we work so that we're able to be more nimble. I think, um, you know, first of all, when you have a streaming service, you have to have exclusive IP. You have to have a reason for people to come to the platform. So when Prime Video started out, it was definitely a content play. I think most streaming services would, would start with that strategy. Um, because you have to have shows that people are like, where, where do I watch that? I want to go there and watch that. Um, I think maybe, you know, it probably merits a podcast of its own on Quibi, but, you know, Quibi <laughs> came out, um, with, a you know, a Super Bowl spot to talk about the whole Quick Bites concept and how you could watch things. And it was, people were just like, so tell me why again, like I'm not going there because it's short. I'm going there because the content is good, whether it's short or long. So I think the difference is, you know, obviously we, we have an objective to drive, um, you know, subscriptions for the prime service, but in my role, I also really want to drive brand love, um, and loyalty and obviously awareness and, you know, those are harder because you can have great shows that people love and you can have fans of those shows, but whether or not they love your brand for your content is something different entirely. Yes. And so that's, that's a challenge. So um, just for clarity, the job that you do specifically is about the prime brand, not the shows itself, right? And, that, and your job is to generate subscribers or what's the... Yeah, so it's actually, my role is specifically around um, brand strategy for Prime Video. So Prime is a subscription service and they have a team that leads that. I obviously um, ladder up in my strategies to driving subscriptions um, and, and acquiring new customers um, for Prime. But first and foremost, to kind of drive that flywheel, I need to um, bring customers into Prime Video and get them interested and make them aware. And so it starts there. And that's the first challenge that I, um, that I look at. Is that, is that taking, um, Keith, if you have a question, jump in here, but I'm just gonna yeah. go down to this, uh, this curiosity trail that I have a little bit. Are you yeah. taking uh, Prime members from Amazon and, and converting them to video members? Or do you start with uh, just trying to get people on Prime, Amazon Prime being video subscribers first? Yeah, good question. So I would say in the US where there's a big prime base, um, we still have a job to do in making sure that everybody who's a prime customer is aware of the benefit of prime video and many are not. And they don't know, you know, what we have and what we offer. Um, outside of the US, you know, we don't have prime in all locations. And so we may go first to market with prime video and we may have local content and we may have global content there. And that's how we may bring consumers into Prime Video. And then we would look to convert them to, you know, broader Prime benefits and the Prime overall subscription. That, I think so you just answered the, probably one of my biggest curiosities because I almost think to myself, if you already have my Prime money, who cares? Who cares if I'm watching Prime Video mm -hmm. or not? You have my annual subscription. I forget right. if I'm renewing it or not. 
Um, but the idea that there are some markets out there that don't have Prime, the one that reached to the FedEx Prime, you know, overnight, uh, get my Amazon package fast version to go to still get Prime subscribers through video. That's a pretty interesting um, yeah. understanding. So we're, we're just competing there as a standalone streaming service. So we're competing against the Disney's, we're competing against the Netflix's just as a standalone streaming service in those markets. Um, and then what we try to do is obviously you're going to be um, the happier that you are with your subscription, it's probably because you're using multiple benefits in that subscription um, and because you're finding a lot of value. And right now, given the state of the economy almost everywhere in the world, um, you know, when I, I'm like kind of a come from like a premium CPG background and I'm kind of like, ugh, value, like something's going to be in a bin somewhere at the end of a Walmart aisle, like, ugh, but when I'm not, you know, that doesn't mean competing on price. Value is really building like consumers' perception of all the things they're getting, not just entertainment value, but you know, the emotional benefits they get out of it. Is it something that provides enjoyment and, and moments with their family? Like that's a big win for us. Is it something where, you know, they're able to access first run movies and they're at home? Like that's a big win for us. So we're really about making sure that people realize that we're more than just content and that we are providing their lives with some sort of enrichment. Yeah, sure. yeah I, I have a quick question, Cameron. So, you know, we've heard a lot of, you, do, you brought up data, which is definitely a, a big thing. And, you know, I know at Fox left right after I left, they, you know, they were building a massive data operation to sort of figure out a way to capture consumer data. How much of that do you think that gives you a leg up over sort of the traditional studios that are still struggling, trying to figure out all the data is it really that much of a leg up for you guys having all that data there? Or is that just sort of the excuse the studios use for why you guys are so much better at micro-targeting? Um, I'll give you my perspective on it as sort of a non-technology company outsider. Yeah. Um, my perspective is data is only as good as the person who is getting the insights out of the data. So like you can have a ton of data, but if you don't have anybody that knows how to interpret data and then draw real insights out of it, it's just numbers. It doesn't matter. And so I think that, you know, we obviously still are constantly like we have a lot of data at our disposal. Um, but then what does it mean? You know, where do you, what, where does it take you? And then you also have to think about in a climate where people are looking to acquire new customers, the data that you have is really about your own customers that you have currently. And so if you have acquisition audiences that you want to speak to and reach out to, you, you don't really know as much about them. And there are reasons why they're not coming to you. So what you really need to dive into are what are the barriers presenting, preventing those acquisition customers from learning about you, subscribing, loving your brand. Um, that, you know, that data is harder, harder to get. That's yeah. really, really insightful because data really is about the past. It's not about the future. And there yeah. are strange trends, like you mentioned, Quibi going up against TikTok. You know, Quibi has, everyone heard Quibi's name because of the marketing campaign. TikTok never even had a marketing campaign. But then when the two compete, in a way, if you can call it compete, uh, the short form thing really pl plays on one platform over the other. You couldn't predict predicted that in data. Clearly, the, the data people had, the, had all the money and their, their process failed. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that where we're trying to make content or uh, build platforms, get viewers, and our hope is, right, that we, we have a better proposition than our competitor. Um, 
but Cameron specifically, yeah, I like the word that you use is like value. When you realize what people really want, they're going to go to the place where they, they get the best shows or the, you know, the best value for the money. Uh, honestly, the platform that they can trust the most, even as simple as just navigate it is easy. Like those things are what probably make our, have us make choices one over the other more often than not. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think, you know, what's interesting is I, I believe that one of our advantages is, could also be one of our barriers at, at Prem Video, which is we're not just a straight streamer and we do offer other benefits. And so that could lead to a perception that it's not our, you know, it's not our core business. We're not invested in it. It's, you know, Netflix, which is singularly focused on entertainment, like somehow we're not an entertainment company. So I do think that when you try to do multiple things, you have to combat the perception that, you know, you don't know that core business where you're competing with D Disney's and people with, you know, huge entertainment legacies who are now in the streaming business who have been known for entertainment. Yeah. And, you know, in the U.S., it's like, well, I get my boxes from Amazon. Do they have good shows? So there's a, there's a gap there to be negotiated. Oh, admittedly, I, I, I'm one of those people. Like, I, I almost feel like Amazon has the money, so they're doing it. And I can't, I can't necessarily figure out why they're doing it. I, I, but honestly, um, the, one of the first things we turn on on our TV is, is Prime Video. It's Netflix Prime Video sitting back to back. And then every other OTT platform just, maybe we'll get to that at some point. But the what to watch problem, I feel like between the two um, are the ones. And yeah. uh, especially if we know a piece of content, I specifically search on Prime Video to find it. Um, so it's like a convenience service. Um, but yeah, that perception, I would totally agree. That's got to be one of the bigger challenges of your job then is to give it, is legitimacy the right word or like- yeah. For sure, credibility. I mean, I think credibility is something that we have to think about. And, and um, it's a really hard challenge when you think about, you know, we can make beautiful creative that's cinematic and, and persuasive that says, like, we understand entertainment and we make great shows here. What's really hard to do is to say, like, tie some very functional benefits from the other pieces of Prime, like reliability and ease of use and lack of friction to entertainment like there is something there where it's just like reliability and you know if you sit down and you put on prime video you're going to find stuff you love to watch and your kids are going to find stuff they love to watch for me that's the like i trust that if i order something on amazon it's going to show up on my door i want that trust but in a really emotional way with it with the consumer like that they just like know that no matter what every single time that they come to prime video they're going to find something they love or delighted by or discover um, and so that's the bridge that, you know, I would like to make. And it's a really hard creative challenge. Sure. Good yeah, I, I was curious. I mean, yeah, I know that you sit sort of separate from the brand. So you obviously have the show marketers. Yeah. And obviously, as a former content marketer myself or a current content marketer, um, how, how much do you guys cross over? Do you anticipate a show that you know is going to be hot and you know is a good opportunity for you to help you build brand loyalty and you sort of like run over to those guys and be like, hey, I need a piece of content that can really like reach out to my side. Does, is that sort of how you guys operate? Because in my mind, that's how it would work sort of from sort of traditional studio side, you know, yeah. but I don't know if that's how you handle it over there. I, I think historically, um, I think historically that's kind of 
the way they've called things that are brand communications at Prime Video and like we're a new company. Like we have not been around for very long. It's been like six years. I've been doing this job for one year. I came in to do international and now I do both. Yeah. So we like learn and change. <laughs> right. um, and so what's really interesting is I think previously uh, Prime Video's brand communications, I'm making air quotes, were really multi-title spots. It was like, we have this show and this show and this show and this show. So like, there's a lot of stuff here. You should come here. Now, the way I think we're thinking about it is, okay, that's fine. I think we've hit sort of the foundational um, kind of category need of a large selection of content. Now, what we really need to do is tell specific audiences that we have content for them. And so the way I think about it now is like, you know, for our acquisition audiences, what do we have credibly like for that audience more than one thing that we can go talk to them about? And then what are the right channels to do that? And it's not always, in fact, for our acquisition audiences, it's not really going to be TV, right? It's going to be um, much, you know, it's going to be social. It's going to be other digital channels. It's going to be experiential with these younger audiences once this whole global pandemic thing and moves along, then, you know, we're going to be going back to, you know, people want to go to, you know, the comic cons, they want to really like live and breathe and become evangelists for the content they love. And so the, yeah, we really believe that experiential is a big part of the, the marketing mix going forward. So do, you, do you, do you see yourself, you know, do you guys see coming like doing your own convention someday, like a D23 type thing where it's all Amazon all the time, or do you think you're just going to be going to the comic cons and the, the, you know, cinema cons of the world. You know, I think it's always better to try to cut, meet consumers where they are and go with existing consumer behavior. Um, I mean, I never say never because Amazon always likes to do things in a new way. Yeah, always um, day one, right? Always <laughs> day one. I mean, that's actually really true. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but you know, I, I think it's, you know, consumers are smart and, we don't want to give them any mental lift, right? Like, especially in entertainment, like entertainment should be where you want it, when you want it, accessible, fun, um, shareable, you know, buzzworthy. And so wherever that's happening, that's where we want to be. Like, it's not so much about building a walled garden just for yeah. our stuff. Yeah. It's about like being part of things that our consumers are part of. And so that's really where you get like the buzzworthiness and you get the people that are, just really fans of content and love it. And, you know, those are, those are the people that we want to talk to and the ones that we want, you know, to be around our brand. I, yeah, I had a, I, there's a, there's a segment of audience that would kill me if I didn't ask this question, especially with what you're on. Um, when you, when you work with vendors to figure out the concept for marketing, um, mm -hmm. what, what are you looking for in that field? Especially when you're talking about the experiential side or even some of the commercial side, there's a lot of creative, uh, opportunity there and output that you can get there's got to be like do you feel like a risk factor when you're going after vendors or do you um, you know engage them or try to look for people that you can give permission to and explore with them um, that's a great question I it's it, this is like Keith as a creative person you're gonna hate this answer um, <laughs> so I want people like I want to write a, a really great brief and I want people who can understand how to deliver to strategy, but are super creative. I also want people who can tell me things I don't know, whether it's data or they like really know a certain audience. Like if it's something that I already know that I feel like there's not a lot of value there, but if they can bring me things and they're like, Hey, you know what? 
there's this whole world out there that you didn't know about some random street food festival culture that's going on and like we're all up in it and like yes like I that's the kind of stuff that you know I, I want to bring people on board who who are additive and who can teach me things and that you know are in places that we just don't know about. Isn't that the funniest part of that relationship is that there's clearly stuff you don't know like you can't know everything yeah. but it's sure. a weird assumption that vendors make that they want you, they want to repeat what you already know to show confidence. Like I know everything that you know, we're on the same page. And you're almost like, yeah, but I already know all that. I just want, I want to collaborate with somebody. I want to, I want to understand and challenge yeah. our brand. Yeah, it, I, it, want to, I, I want to work with somebody I can tell no to. Like, no, that doesn't yeah. work for us now and let them not feel totally broken down, but will come back to us. Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know what, what part of that you think I was going to dislike here. <laughs> <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly yeah. with that. Um, yeah, just the just the like the brief part. It's really interesting. Like oh, yeah. I came from packaged goods, and like we live and die by a brief. Yes, in packaged goods, and everyone that we ever worked with on the creative side knew how to interpret a brief, and knew how to interpret research, and knew how to like roll along there. Yeah, entertainment is different. Yeah. Um, yeah. The rigor around the brief is not the same. And so, what I really love is when. I know this is what I'm saying, right? That's yeah. my nightmare comment. Um, where, or like you get a bunch of stuff and you're like, this is super creative. What is this for? Like totally not the project we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Like I, what I love is when I write a brief and the agent, we have a kickoff at the agency and they're like really digging into the brief, ask me questions. This doesn't make sense. Explain this more to me. Like, because if we can't make them understand the brief, we're not going to make the consumer understand the brief. And so you know, that whole process for me is really valuable. Like what's not clear here mm -hmm. and how can I make it clear or what's missing or what do you need to know? Cause that back and forth is, is for me the most valuable part of the process. Yeah. But the vendor feels foolish if they don't know the answers. They feel like, Oh no, I look stupid if I have a question. Cause right. I, I'm, you know, they're afraid of asking something. Oh my God. Ask, ask questions. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that's funny because when, you know, when I was at Fox, it's interesting. I, I, I tried to put in a brief process because, you know, my training was in advertising. Yeah. And we were going so far afield and I had a lot of vendors who just didn't understand anything. And I tried to put it in place, but obviously I had a lot of very traditional entertainment marketers who were like, brief, what the F is that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wholeheartedly agree and endorse your statement. And it's funny because when I was at Fox, I had the same struggle because a lot of my vendors just, I, I want to collaborate. I don't want me, yeah. I, if, if, if I knew the answer, why am I coming to you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, and I also say, think, but what, what, what should the copy be? And I'm like, I'm not a copywriter. Oh I hired you because you have a that whole list of copywriters. That is the worst question. Like, I'm not here to write your copy. You know, yeah. I think about Fox and especially your department, and it was a world where, there wasn't a true, like it wasn't strategically driven, right? Like there'd be a trailer cut and yeah. then the whole campaign would flow from the first trailer that was cut. Ready that, fire aim is what we called it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's was the old way of doing it. Now it's like, we have such 360 marketing plans. It's not about linear TV, right? It's totally not about that. That's like such a small piece. So you really have to have a strategy that's at the center Yep. to be able to drive out all those parts and you know with especially with multiple different audiences or four quadrant or you know whatever you really have to get granular on like what that strategy and what that message is so that and you have to be clear with your partners like this is for this person and this is what we want to convince them of and these are the reasons why and then like 
that's all I really give. And you know, some mandatories like, but I don't give like creative considerations. I'm like, this is my strategy. Go figure it out and come back to me and bring me a range of wacky stuff and we'll narrow it down to three things and we'll do some concept testing and then we'll go, right? Like that's the part of the process that is, I, I get a lot of richness out of. Do you find, do you find that you are more challenged looking at your competitors and trying to do what they're not doing or more challenged trying to keep up with what they're doing? Um, so Amazon overall is not really a competitive, like is the least competitively focused business um, that I've ever worked on by far. And it's because we are the innovators usually. Um, and so I will say this though, like coming in, there was a almost a refusal to look at competition. And I, you know, if, if we're really customer obsessed, then we need to understand everything our customers are seeing and all the choices that they're being asked to make. And so that requires us to pay attention and know what's going on and know what the messaging looks like and understand how we stack up against that messaging. And we don't benchmark against competitors, but I do think that to understand your customer, you have to understand what they're seeing um, and, and, you know, what messages are being given to them. Um, and we all the time from all around the world, I get emails every day and they're like, great. So Disney in Brazil is like doing this for the next month where they're offering this at like six ninety nine, you know, and it's like, okay, well, that's good to know. We're not going to like price match, you know, with, you know, that it's, it's like, that's not our, that's not our strategy, but it's good to know that our customers are. And I've actually had like salespeople and tech people that I don't know reach out to me from across Amazon when they've like sent these emails and they've made their way to me and be like, I need to understand how you think about this. And I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you, like, we're not, when you compete on price, there's only one way to go, which is like free. Same with shipping, by the way, or anything with time. When you compete on time, eventually it gets there immediately. So those are bad things to compete on. Sure. So we, but we need to be aware of them. So that's kind of the balance of like, you know, how, how competitors play into what we're doing. And obviously, you know, we knew for a long time that Disney Plus was coming and we knew, you know, what that meant and what it would eventually look like and how much effort they would put into it. And, um, you know, that's, that certainly is something that I think disrupted um, streaming as much as anything that's ever happened. Sure. But in reality, Disney at least has... We'll say they're at some point finite. They have they have somewhat of a long tail, but it seems like Amazon's model is super long tail. Like if you make it, it'll show up on Amazon. Where Disney has a Disney filter of do they own it or will they distribute it? So it is uh, that the difference of the two platforms obviously are, are very obvious when you're looking for certain content. Yeah. Um, Keith and I, we, almost one of our first collaborations is what we call the what to watch problem. It's this, I, I honestly feel like the amount of adult human um, um, productive thought that goes into what should we watch tonight, we could have yeah. an answer already with as many yeah. people trying to solve that problem. Yeah. And uh, the challenge really is, is that the OTT platforms have forced us to separate everything into different buckets. So it's, the question of what to watch really is like, well, where do we start digging through the infinite content? And then how do we get bored with looking at that and move on to the next one and so on and so forth. So there has to be some drive or some sense of loyalty of where to start when solving the what to watch problem. And then a way to meet that need as soon as possible so they don't skip off of that. Um, you're, you're, you're shaking your head. I'm more, probably more making a statement than a question out of this thing. But I do find it like, 
one of the greatest challenges to entertainment today is getting people to watch. Uh, maybe like in your, in with Amazon Prime recently with Borat, it's just like the perfect timing for the perfect kind of comedy um, and the push that you guys did. Every time I turn on Amazon Prime now, it's all Borat everywhere or whatever. Um, but so that in that case, the, the content, I easily knew where to go because I was seeking out that content. Um, but I have to, maybe what I'm asking is like, it's a real challenge, right? To get people to understand yeah. that what you have on Prime opposed to your competitors. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where not being the market leader comes in because when you're Netflix, it's like everyone's like, they know there's a lot of crap on Netflix, but they also know there's a lot of stuff. And, uh, and consumers are actually willing to give an amazing amount of time to looking for things. And my husband is a great example of this, where I swear he will be like, I'm like, all men need is just a guide channel. They don't need anything else. They just want to scroll. They want a scrolling channel. Just want to look at all the possibilities endlessly for an hour. This, we have this conversation every single night. I'm like, why do we even bother pretending we're looking for a show? You want to watch trailers for random Star Trek episodes. Like, this is a disaster. <laughs> So, I love awesome. so <laughs> men, you need your own scrolling streaming service. That's all I have to say. Um, but no, I think, um, you know, your point about starting, like starting here is a really good one. Um, and I think, you know, I, I would say really openly, I don't know that Prime in Prime Video, we're doing ourselves a great service because we have the greatest breadth of content of any service because you can also rent and buy things on our service that are not part of the subscription. Eventually there'll be live sport, you know, robust live sport packages. And so you'll be able to access everything, but there are some things and people with kids know this too, because you know, all of a sudden there's something that's not part of the subscription or there's like an episode that's not part of the subscription or it's part of a channel or it's part of something else. And that sort of confusion to customers is really not only confusing, but it also makes them feel a little bait and switched. Like yeah. it's, why isn't it as easy? I just go here and everything should be here and it should be free in AirPods, right? So one of our communications challenges is really is saying like, start here because everything you could ever want to watch possibly is in, it is on Prime Video. You know, the nav and the actual product, you know, we could do a better job in being probably more explicit and more entertaining. But that's really, you know, people on Netflix, you're like, I, I, you know, how am I, I've ended up watching so many random food shows where I was like, it wasn't very good, but it just yeah. was, you know, like, it was good enough. So really the TV guide channel, which is now defunct, really is a, is the need is something the there. channel now. That's what you're saying, really. It's like men channel. Just, just trailers and scrolling. There's no actual content. That's often, that's like the best. Because my wife, she'll scroll through Instagram. That's not my thing. But scrolling through, uh, you know, yeah. entertainment platforms, totally. Oh, yeah, I could do that all day. It's endless scrolling. Oh, look at all the options. I don't want to get into anything deeply. I just want to see all of everything. Maybe that's why the top of our mind, Keith, is that we're just a couple of guys always asking, like, what the hell is going on? How do we find what to watch? It's so crazy. Right. Yeah, I think that the content makers, you know, what we try to teach in the content making um, part of my consulting is this idea that you, you have to know why you're making the content first. And to your point originally, like the value proposition, like the content you're making has to generate something, curiosity, action, money, you know, return on investment, something that gives 
the reason to even start making the content to begin with. And then the, the question of, you know, where will it be seen? And when it comes to the thought process of like, well, Amazon Prime is a place that everything can be seen, is a little intimidating. It's almost, <clears throat> it almost makes it seem like, well, anything can be on Prime, so I'm not really chosen, or I'm not, I haven't really broke through. Um, but I think you guys are really taking on that challenge and actually picking key content and saying, no, we are the place to distribute some original goods. Yeah, I mean, I would say to that, like, actually, with streaming, you're almost more assured that your content will find an audience because we make content for audiences and we know how to serve it to them. Whereas you could have make a content for a studio and they'll like put it out and they'll make a campaign for it. But like, you can't ensure that those audiences are the ones that come and that see it. So we make content for audiences that we either have or want and, and can bring them in. I think the other thing that's really interesting about kind of being part of Amazon as a whole is that content creators can come here and bring their stories to life in a like th dimensional way that no other streamer can offer them, right? Like. We can do things with them on Twitch. We can do things with them through Alexa. We can deepen the narrative and the interaction that consumers have with their IP in a way that no one else can do. So it's pretty rich across the business, if you think about it. Um, and that's kind of what we tell people, like, it's a good question, you know, why should this be a home for your content other than, you know, everyone can say, we're a great place to work. We have collaborative people. You know, we have a lot of creators. We'll spend money, I, I, that's something that, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, platforms can say, but really bringing things to life in an innovative way that hasn't been done before. Like, I, I actually do believe that we can do that more than anybody else. I love that. <clears throat> there, um, okay, so Baby Shark, it just passed, like, it just got to 7 billion views, which seems like insanity. Like, I, that's, that's incredible. There's 7 billion people who can watch one piece of content. Um, what, what's a big viewing, viewing matrix for Amazon uh, distribution? Do you get into the billions of views? Are you looking for, how, how do you measure a success yeah. of something on, on Prime? Because it's, and why don't you show us how many views? Isn't yeah. is that a matrix that's not good in marketing? So I think you could ask 10 different people this question and get 10 different answers. I'll tell you what I think. Nobody knows the answer, right? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think there's probably, we certainly have metrics. Um, in my, the way I think about it is I am thinking more about like who is completing episodes and seasons. I'm less interested in, in views. Um, I want to know like who is staying until the end um, because that really tells me do, am I, am I drawing people in? Am I getting them committed to something? Are they coming back for something? And that's really more interesting than did I catch someone's attention for whatever number of minutes, right? So like, you know, so that, you know, you can, it's, it's very easy to get someone's attention for maybe a short period of time. It's hard to get them coming back and watching multiple episodes or, you know, that's, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, different kinds of form formats in the mix and the different kind of commitment it is to watch a movie versus commit to a series and the different roles that those have in the portfolio. And so it's much more interesting to me, like, so who stayed in it for the long haul? 
Um, cause that tells me that that's someone who was engaged and I'm always looking at the engagement metrics more than I am like just the simple who saw it metrics. Is that helpful that they engage because they're consuming more minutes on Amazon then? So it's actual total amount of minutes that you're looking at as a success? I mean, I guess like the data people would be like, yes, it's the number of minutes. But in my mind, cause I don't think that way. Um, for me, it's like, they were satisfied for eight hours and they were satisfied on Prime Video, right? Like, so the likelihood that they're gonna believe that the next time they come back, they're gonna be satisfied is probably pretty good. Cool. Um, you know, the whole minutes thing, like how many minutes were spent? Yeah, like that's a, that's a good measure because it also is engagement, but I really look at it on a content level to think about like, are we making stuff that people love and that they're sticking with and finishing? Um, and that we're making it easy for them to, you know, digest and, and um, experience, or is it too hard? Is there a barrier? Is it not interesting enough? Are the first episodes not interesting enough? Are they not staying with it? Whatever, there's a million reasons, but, um, but that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I can mention with a commercial platform, minutes are important because you can sell more commercial time. You have right. more eyeballs. In your case, I'm guessing the, the success rate is, um, if, I, if I don't ever use it, I'm eventually not gonna subscribe. But there is a commerce mechanism to, yeah, or views or whatever, and my dollars I'm putting on Prime. Yeah, I mean, you definitely you, people using Prime Video as a benefit is is a really important metric for us, right? We want them to be satisfied. We want them to see value in the subscription. Um, and if they never come to it, they won't know that there's great stuff there for them. Yeah, sure. So that's a huge that's a huge hurdle. Yeah. So interesting, the difference between, you know, how you're describing it, what we see from Netflix on a daily basis, where they're like, we had the highest movie ever in the services history. And everybody knows well, that, that that person may have watched two minutes of Bird Box or whatever. And, you know, you were talking more about the overall content as a whole. And I, now that you mentioned that, I've never, I don't think I've ever really heard of Amazon Prime Video bragging about you know, the rank or anything like that. It, it, so that's interesting. That seems to be, you know, your philosophy seems to penetrate across the company for sure. Yeah. I mean, we don't do a lot of like chest thumping. You won't, you won't ever see that. Um, you, it's just part of the culture. It's part of the overall company culture. I think, um, you know, it, it, we, that it's something actually there's, there's interesting, uh, you know, we've sort of talked about with creators because creators like to see that stuff out in the world right they yeah. love it when Netflix is like yeah we're that you know they want to they want those they, they, they want those accolades and yeah. so you know it's been interesting to think about that part of the company culture and how it reconciles with um, you know creators need to have a big win in the market and have it be covered in the trades and you know have it be talked about so I think like we want to, yeah, you want to have some awards. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we definitely do all the traditional kinds of award campaigns. So I think on that front, it's pretty industry standard. It's just really on sort of the PR angle where I think it's a little bit different. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, and then you got the Lord of the Rings saga you guys are doing. I'm guessing like that kind of showing some investment of original content. Amazon's still in the game to to want to build these big shows and be known for make, making the shows instead of having just content makers use Amazon as a, as a distribution platform. Yeah. I mean, originals are really important to us. I think, um, you know, but to be honest, it's, it's people love 
so many different kinds of content. So we want to give people what they love. Like originals are important to us and they're important to our business and they, we make them because they're fans of this IP. But like people love 3P content. I mean, in Brazil, they love two and a half men. They love like, they love this stuff. And so we want to be where like people can watch the stuff they want to watch. I mean, it's interesting. So there's a role. There's a role for these different kinds of content. Um, there's a role for local originals in countries outside of the U.S. People want to see their stories. And it's really, you know, I think like many companies who have, you know, worked now in local originals for many years, it's like, it's not Latam originals. It's like Chilean originals. It's, you know, okay. so it's, it's very, very local in that world. And that's what people, they want that mix of, I can watch, you know, two and a half men, but I also can watch you know, a, a local original. Um, and I can watch global originals because I want to be part of that conversation. So it's all of those things are important. That's awesome. Keith, I could, I could do this all day. Cameron, I don't know, I know. what timing is. <laughs> we usually have a half hour. Cameron could too. <laughs> halfway through all the questions I have. Cameron, you have to come back. I am so curious about how this works. From the content maker point of view, there are so many challenges that I find that we're up against and trying to figure out how to navigate um, that even the idea of the, the uh, credibility, legitimacy of where your shows are put and how each platform is seen differently is just so curious to me. And to hear the insider's thought of what's going on, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, it's, yeah. it's huge to kind of wrap your head around what's happening on the, on the other team's side. Yeah. Happy to come back. We should schedule this more at a co appropriate cocktail hour. We'll do a cocktail <laughs> hour then next time. That's yeah. that, we'll, we'll we'll do our first um, Hollywood Breaks cocktail hour. Uh, I think that's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If we can just get Keith on a plane, we can actually just sit down at a table together. And yeah. I'm not gonna, hey. I'm not gonna sit at a sit at a table with a guy that's just been on a plane. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be locked away in my bubble then. I'll come yeah. as a bubble boy. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I come down to LA enough. Maybe the, those would be you and I in a room. We'll put Keith on the other side, and you and I can. There you go. I'll be on the other side of the wall. How's that? That's fine. In a hazmat suit. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I just love it. I love this show. I love getting some of these scoops. Uh, Keith, you're amazing. Pulling Cameron in on this thing and convincing her that we're legitimate enough to be, talk to us today. And Cameron, thanks for taking the time to meet up with us. I know I got a lot of from this thing and I'm sure our viewers will too. So I appreciate you doing that. It's great. My pleasure. Thank you, Cameron. Good to You're see welcome. you. You're welcome. Thanks and, guys. Uh, I just want to wrap up saying thank you to all of you that are watching. We appreciate you. If there's anything that we can do, any conversation questions you have, just direct message us here on the platform you're watching us. Or you can find me at revthink.com. Um, Keith is available too through RevThink. Just, just hit us up, we'll, we'll find you. And uh, thank you to Lydia behind the scenes. You're amazing, always producing this stuff and helping us get it out there. Um, thank you both again. And uh, Cameron, until next time, I look forward to that. And Keith, I'll see you next week. <laughs>